I want to press forward with sort of a theme I've been doing when I've been up here to speak, and I'm going to continue to preach messages from the book of Revelation. And that's sort of my plan to the end of the year. It is one of the hardest books in the history of the church with regard to interpretation, particularly in getting agreement around interpretation. So I admit that at the forefront. Revelation is a book that should be handled reverently before God, and I would add charitably before other believers. You go through the history of the church and do historical theology, you will see that many able theologians and commentators have come to very different thoughts regarding many of the passages in this book. However, regardless of how each of us understands the details and the various symbols in this apocalyptic book, no matter how we might disagree on various meanings and timelines, the true Orthodox Church is always united over several themes in the book, and definitely around the central theme of the book. The central theme of Revelation is that the Lord Jesus Christ is victorious in ushering in His kingdom, and that He will consummate history by His literal, physical arrival on the earth to reign forever with His people. I'm going to repeat that theme again. The theme that the whole universal church has agreed upon in this book is that Jesus Christ is victorious in ushering in His kingdom and He will consummate history by His literal, physical arrival on the earth to reign forever with His people. The Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest statements of faith in the history of the church, simply left it at this. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Period. No words on all the other details or the timelines. He's coming again. And He will judge. And He will reign. That's really the main thing in this book. Other details relating to the timeline are secondary to that revelation. And it's not to say we shouldn't wrestle with them. We should because it's in God's Word. But it's important to realize the main thing. You and I can disagree on different parts of the book and yet still break bread as believers around the hope that we have that our Lord is returning. There's actually several uh, universal spiritual themes scattered throughout the book that even if you disagree on certain details, the big concepts, the big themes are still able to stir every believer's heart. And I don't think God would have given us a book with so much complicated passages if He didn't intend to still move in the hearts of every believer. The ultimate goal of the book of Revelation is not merely to fascinate us. It is to stir our hearts to overcome and to stir us with hope that the bridegroom is coming. That's why the historical context is important when you consider this book. It's something that gets missed because I think one of the byproducts of living in an age of relative peace and freedom, at least in the West, even though it's diminishing, but we've enjoyed freedoms. We have the luxury of being able to just be fascinated by parts of Scripture. But the historical context of this book was in an anti-Christian mood in the Roman Empire. And those who would be reading this book were not merely fascinated with details of the future. They would be reading this epistle looking for encouragement looking for the exhortation from their Lord to overcome. Persecution was sweeping over the Roman Empire. It had gone in waves, but by the time this book was written, it was in its greatest intensity. And fear and discouragement in the churches was very real. It's important to keep this in mind 
when we read the book of Revelation. And it's very important to keep in mind as we delve into this passage in Revelation 4. This vision that we will see of heaven's throne was not given just to to salve curious minds. It was given so that the church would have comfort. So that the church would have peace. So that the church would be stirred to boldness in their witness. And so that the church would have an eternal, heavenly perspective. It's a section of the book that reveals exactly what the disheartened church needed to hear before anything else. And as we'll see, chapter 4 is an unveiling, which is what apocalypse means, an unveiling, not about things that are to come on the earth, that's coming throughout the book. It's actually more than that. That's probably what they would want first. Like, what's going on? What's going on in this earth? Get to the details. But God knows what we need. The first thing they would need a revelation of is where it's all directed, which is heaven's throne. And so that is why this is really the heart of the book of Revelation. Heaven's throne. And just to sort of give a a theme of the whole book in, in explanation, it's really an answer to the church's prayer through the ages, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how the book unfolds to the very end. You see, at the end of the book, heaven comes down to earth. The kingdom of God is arriving on the earth and God is judging the earth and purging it and making it ready to fill His glory and to reign with His people. So if this is all about the kingdom of God from heaven to earth, it would make sense that the very beginning of this whole unveiling would start with the kingdom of God in heaven. And that is really the the whole theme of the book being set up. Chapter 4 reveals the kingdom of God as it is in heaven with God's will being perfectly fulfilled. And this is what's coming to the earth, to the joy of every saint and to the terror of all who oppose the king. Verse 1 sets the stage. I want to just jump straight in so that we're in the Word. Verse 1 sets the stage for this much-needed vision for the church. Look at verse 1. John is writing. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. For context, after this refers to the words that Jesus had spoken to the seven churches. In chapters 2 and 3, we went through a couple of those in the last couple months. John looks after these words to the churches, and all of a sudden he is transported in his attention to a door standing open in heaven. And before we go on, I just want to take a special note again of the fact that the first revelation John gets in this whole revelation is a glimpse of heaven. And he's been exiled for preaching the Word. And there's something here to glean for us. Before we can understand what's happening on the earth, you and I need the eyes of our hearts to be lifted to the throne of heaven. Nothing makes sense on the earth if your eyes are only on the earth. Everything makes sense when your eyes are on the occupied throne of heaven. And it should get the attention of our minds and hearts like it did those first readers. That as we are to look at the nations raging and as we look at the spiritual state of the American churches and how they're in decline as we face trials in our lives of various kinds and strive to overcome, you and I need this transcendent vision. Don't go long in your Christian journey without thinking about heaven. 
John is given this vision, and it's written down for you and I. And he sees an open door. The door that his spirit's going to enter through in the vision. Now think about what this would mean for John while he's exiled. He's the last surviving sort of patriarch of the church. And he's being permitted to enter through heaven's door and get a glimpse into the other side. He sees what none else in the church get to see. Remember that this book of Revelation was read to the churches as an epistle, as it would get delivered on the postal route through Asia Minor. And as they were facing the imminent threat of persecution and even possible martyrdom, they would be all ears when they would hear this opening phrase, I saw a door in heaven. That John would enter through this door and report back. This would give them the fuel to overcome. We continue to read from John. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. John knows this voice. He heard this voice like a trumpet in chapter 1. It sounds like a trumpet, not in the same way we think of trumpets with musical accompaniment. The trumpet here was often used with urgency and authority in times of battle. It was like a trumpet blast. It arrests the attention. This is what John hears in this voice. It drowns out all other sounds. And he's told, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. What must take place can be summed up as really the content in the rest of the book of Revelation. I want to take note of one particular word there. In this word to come up, look at the word must. I will show you what must take place. I think every word in Scripture is put there with special intention. That word must is a really good word for the church. These things must take place. The things that will take place in God's plan to consummate history are not up in the air. They are fixed and predetermined by our sovereign God. The success of the church the consummation of His kingdom, the defeat of Satan, the judgment of the nations, the restoration of the earth, the glorious coming and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things that take place are as good as done. They must take place. They're not up for chance. The script is already written in God's book. And that's very important to understand at the outset of this whole revelation. John continues in verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. It says here that he was in the Spirit, which can be taken to mean many things. Uh, I really don't know what this looked like for John while he was in exile. Was he in some sort of -of out-of-body experience, like his, his body was left at Patmos while his spirit and inner man were transported in this vision? Was he in some sort of trance? Was he sleeping? We really don't know what it looked like. Did time stop? Maybe he just completely went on a trip to heaven, body and all. We really don't know. But he was in the Spirit, and regardless of the nature of John's state in the vision, as far as he was concerned, the Spirit had him in a completely different place. Because as we read the book, we see that all of his senses are very real to him. He's seeing things with his own eyes. He even tastes something in the book. 
and he's writing things down, everything he sees for the churches. He's as good as there when the Spirit leads him. And as John goes through the door in heaven and sees the other side, the first gripping reality of heaven that he's struck by is that he sees a throne and one who is seated on it. Do you ever think about what you'll see if you were just to get a glimpse of heaven? I think it's noteworthy that the very first thing he sees that is unmistakably the biggest thing to see is he sees an occupied throne. He's not caught up by streets of gold or pearly gates. I'm sure those are very nice in heaven. Or crowns of people that he might know there. His attention in the Spirit is directed to the throne of God. The throne represents the sovereignty of God over heaven and over the whole universe, the whole cosmos. And remember the significance this would have for the churches that he would report back to. The churches on earth for all time. This throne presides over Caesar's throne. This throne presides over the whole Roman Empire. Over every nation in the course of the church's history. The throne is said to be standing. A standing throne. This standing communicates that the throne is fixed and permanent. Not going anywhere. None can ever move this king from his throne and he will never move. Nothing in the spiritual realm, including Satan himself, can move this throne and nothing on earth can move this throne, including governments and events and oppositions to silence the church. It highlights the one who sits upon the throne. The fact that he sits upon the throne means that he is the ultimate and unmovable king. It's also significant that he's seated. He's not repositioning himself. He's not standing, looking over the affairs of earth, wondering what exactly is going to happen. He's calm, serene, and governing from his throne over all that is happening. This is the king. And I will admit that this sort of flies against our, our modern Western ideas that we uphold the, the principles of democracy. The idea of a kingdom doesn't exactly square with what we've been taught to, to uphold the most. God is not in a democracy. He is in an eternal theocracy in heaven. And ultimately and supremely, we are to uphold the kingdom of God. And He reigns supremely. There's no division and separation of powers, no senate, no checks and balances, no voting takes place to remove Him. God is on His throne and He sits there supreme. He is King and He always will be. That is what we need to see. And by the way, I'm going to just note right now, as we look at this vision, that, that we should have in mind that God on His throne in this particular passage really is God the Father on His throne. The next chapter, chapter 5, which I'm going to sort of have as a part 2 next week, we will see that God the Son, Jesus, approaches the throne with His own authority. And this is why I'm primarily saying God is on His throne in reference to God the Father. God the Father's throne gives special meaning to God the Son's occupation on the throne. And I plan to delve into all of that special theological significance next week. There's your plug. For now, though, I don't want to get ahead. I want to just stick with what John is seeing right now. And what John sees is God is on His throne, and that's really enough 
to rivet his whole attention. And this sovereign God deserves our attention. We need to remember this. This is not a a passage that has a lot of particular practical application. We'd be tempted to pass through it because, well, it doesn't really have something for me today. I had a professor in, Bible professor in college who would say to us, sometimes we need to repent of how we read the Bible because we always are thinking of ourselves. Perhaps the application is to consider God. There are some practical ramifications I will go through in this sermon. But it is enough that we center around the throne of God. We need to remember this. The church is strongest in its history when it is fixated not on the news of earth, not on the darkness of the culture. Believers and saints have always been strongest, from Moses to Daniel and all the others. They've always been strongest and boldest and most effective when they have their eyes high and lifted up to the one who occupies the throne. There's a saying that says uh, some people are too heavenly minded and of no earthly good. I think Scripture teaches the opposite. Those who are heavenly minded do the most earthly good. C.S. Lewis put it this way, like this. C.S. Lewis said, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. End quote. Don't ever feel ashamed to have an eternal and heavenly perspective when things in the culture are trying to vie for the church's attention. Doesn't mean we have our head in the sand and we're not looking around us and thinking of practical solutions to matters, but at the end of the day, we remember heaven's king. And John doesn't just stop there just describing the sovereignty of this king. I want to move faster through the passage. He goes on to describe the splendor of the king. Look at verse 3. John says this in his effort to give description. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now I think this is John just trying to put something together in earthly terms for what he was seeing. I'll make a few comments based on insights I've read. Uh, He records that John, I'm sorry, that God is like a jasper stone, which was really like a crystal clear gem that refracted light. It's used at the end of the book to describe the new Jerusalem where God's glory shines through everywhere you go. He also describes it as being like carnelian, or some versions say sardius, a gemstone that had a fiery red and brilliant look to it. And notice again, John's just trying to make an attempt. The point here is it was glorious, beautiful, breathtaking appearance of this one on the throne. And the overall point seems to be that the sight of God on His throne as He's revealed Himself is that He is glorious and dominant and beautiful. There's nothing else in heaven that caught John's attention first than the one who is on His throne beaming. God is the glory of heaven. And he says that around the throne was a rainbow like an emerald in appearance. This rainbow wraps around the throne. It's not like the semicircle of a rainbow that you see after it rains. A complete circle around the throne, enveloping it. Now, for one thing, we can note that a rainbow is a beautiful sight to see. And so this is communicating some beauty that he's seeing when light is refracted. And the light of God's glory will have a brilliant effect we see in Scripture. 
I think there's a, a deeper theological significance to this rainbow encircling the throne. We know a rainbow carries meaning as you go back into your Old Testament that it was a sign of God's covenant faithfulness and His grace toward His people. It was a sign that He would no longer flood the earth as He did in the time of Noah. It's as though God hung His bow in the sky, no longer to make war. This would be an encouragement for John and the readers to see and for the churches to hear. As they were in an hour of tribulation and the churches were dwindling with like fading lampstands. But God is enthroned. And what they get to see about this enthroned God is He is faithful toward His people. He will keep every promise He has ever made to His own. He will not lose one of His elect. He will never abandon His people on the earth. He will always love those who are His and nothing can separate them from His love. He will build His church. He will keep every covenant and remnant from every nation. This God upon His throne is faithful. It's not an arbitrary God like the gods of the Romans and the gods of Greece and the ancient world where they're just impulsive and capricious. God makes promises. God keeps His covenants. He will punish evil and put an end to it, and usher in His kingdom, and fill the earth with His glory. What an encouragement to us that the King of love is on His throne. This is the joy of heaven for all to see. Because there is no condemnation for those who are there. They get to behold the God of mercy and grace. They are the recipients of the King's glorious faithfulness forever. Much can be ascribed to the one on the throne. John moves forward, and so we're going to move forward with him. After gazing at this central site of God reigning, John takes notice of some other things. He notices next what's around the throne. I imagine he looked for a while, and he starts to notice what's around the throne. Consider verse 4. John continues. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. He looks at the main throne. Then he starts to notice there's other thrones in this giant throne room of heaven. I'm going to admit here that we're beginning to get into details common to the book of Revelation where there are some different perspectives and it's not exactly always cut and dry and easy to interpret. The identity of these 24 elders, these 24 thrones, has had some different perspectives to them. I'm going to briefly touch on what surrounds the throne And who surrounds the throne? Let's begin with the what. The first thing John sees are the thrones. It's the first thing that catches his eye. Other thrones. These are lesser thrones. Because they surround the central throne. They're not central. They're not the dominant one. They're not the ones that catch his eyes at first. These thrones are in submission to the authority of of God's throne. And by surrounding the God on His central throne, they show that they all answer to Him. And any authority they have is really just delegated to them, granted by His his own benevolence. These thrones are actual positions of authority. We don't want to diminish that these are thrones. Real authority. Which brings us to who? Who? Who are these people on the throne? Some have ventured to say perhaps they're angelic beings, like a cabinet that God has. Some view as 
24 particular other kinds of beings, like God has a council of, of others. I've never found those to be particularly persuasive. These subordinates are reigning with God, and though there's been different perspectives, I'll sort of um, tilt us toward what I've seen as a pervasive view through many that I've read who have grappled with this passage. This has actually been held by many commentators in the history of the church. Many seem to view these 24 elders as being more representative in function as representing redeemed saints. Redeemed saints. A few reasons why, and the reasons why I find this compelling is because the reasons are from the flow of the book. And that always is a good sign. First of all, they're on thrones. Who is described as those who will reign with God in the end? Well, the original ones who were given the authority to reign was man. Man was given dominion in the garden, and his destiny was to reign, to rule. And it is the privilege of ruling that is restored for them in the kingdom to come, all those who would be redeemed. I don't know if you think of yourself as someone who's going to be reigning someday, but if you read your Bible, it describes the saints as someday ruling. You're going to rule. Interesting concept. It's said over and over in reminders from Jesus to the seven churches. If you conquer and you overcome, you will reign. The Bible is clear that the saints' destiny is to rule. In fact, it even says we will rule over angels. We will judge angels. Which steers me away from identifying these as angels. They're servants for our sake. Though they're powerful and they do God's bidding, their ultimate destiny is not to rule. The saints are described in the Scriptures as those who will reign with Christ. The other indicators that these could be redeemed saints is the attire that they have. Literally, it says that they, will be get, they are given, they have white garments. If you look in Revelation 3, you could jot it down and look it up later, one of the words that Jesus literally says to the churches is if they conquer, he will give them a white garment. So that's just right there in the book. It's like we've seen this before. Jesus said a white garment will be given. This could be triumphant saints. The other indication is they're wearing crowns. Jesus also said in chapter 2, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is the believer's reward. And here we have these elders who have white garments reigning And they have crowns. And that might just seem like a good guess. Um, There's context around the book that seems to point us there. Even then, we need to be charitable about identifying these beings. The saints in heaven will enjoy the unspeakable privilege of not only being in their king's presence, but also being given authority to fulfill their original mandate. One last comment about these elders. Why 24? Why 24 elders? Many in the history of the church have actually found a lot of agreement about this. There's been different perspectives, but it's interesting how many look at the flow of the book again for guidance. At the end of the book of Revelation, we don't have time to look at it, but in chapter 21, when the new Jerusalem is described, it says that there will be 12 names on the gates, the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 names of the apostles on the foundations. So it seems reasonable for most scholars to note the function of an elder, which is to represent the people to God. The 12 tribes of Israel could represent the Old Testament saints gathered around the throne. The 12 apostles can represent the New Testament saints gathered around the throne. All saints from all ages gathered here redeemed with white garments and crowns around the throne. Elders in ancient Israel 
represented the different clans and the tribes before the gathering at the gates. In the New Covenant, elders also serve a representative function as they answer to God before their congregations. It was seen that elder is not being used here as describing one who is wise, but one who represents before God all in their era. And that sort of sheds light. Old covenant saints, new covenant saints, they're all before this throne because of the same reason. They all have white garments. They all have crowns, victor's crowns. Because they all are washed by the same blood of the Lamb, making them clean and spotless before the throne of God. No matter what era a saint is from, when you have a conversation in heaven and exchange testimonies, they're all going to be the same. Different circumstances, different ways of explaining it. But the same Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, with His bloodshed on the cross, purchased them and made them clean. What an encouragement these crowns and these white garments would be to John and his readers and to us. This is what theologians call the church victorious. On the earth, the church is the church militant. This is the church victorious. And God sees and takes note of His servants on the earth. They are to overcome and persevere. And yet, in all this, the imminence and closeness of God to His people... It's not the full picture that the church needed to hear because John continues. This is a a remarkable picture of of God in covenant closeness to His people. But John then hears something else and sees something. Look at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. I just kind of picture here, this is just me thinking about the passage. John's looking at these thrones, and he's sort of admiring them. Look at those thrones, look at these elders, their crowns, their attire. And immediately, God just gets his attention back to the central throne. Suddenly, he's like, he's going back to the main throne. And he's riveted by peals of thunder and sights of lightning and rumblings. There is a storm brewing at the main throne in the room. And it must have been an incredible sight, and it must have been loud. But John's attention is arrested back to the center. It's not long before you're directed back to the center in heaven, because that's what it's all about. And this vision of God's throne is suddenly changing before his eyes. An an immense storm proceeds from the throne. Storms in apocalyptic literature are often used as a a picture of God's wrath and His judgment. And there's an indication here that something is about to go down upon the earth. From the throne of God, John sees this storm, and it's not coming upon those who are encircled around the throne, who are redeemed. It is coming upon all those who oppose His people and oppose the kingdom of God. Contained in this storm is is a time of wrath that the rest of the book will reveal with cosmic proportions. The rest of the book reveals this storm coming down. But John just sees it brewing at this point. For now it is enough that John and the church sees that God is not only sitting, He's not just sitting on His throne. He's he's actually active. Active. He's not sitting sitting idly on His throne. He's taking notice of His saints on the earth, and He's taking notice of all those who are persecuting them, and evil will not triumph. A storm is coming. The verse continues, And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. I want to continue to handle this passage reverently and admit that we don't completely know what this means. 
Seven torches kind of sounds like the seven lampstands that the church is represented. Seven is used as a, a number of completion and fullness. It seems more likely that it's different because torches are different than lampstands. Lampstands provide light in a dark area in a household and in the limits of the city. Torches in the ancient world were often used in times of war. Usually when an army was marching at night, they would have their torches. And it seems fitting in the midst of the storm that before the throne are seven torches, complete and full readiness for war. These seven torches are consumed with holy fire, giving off full light. And the idea is that God will bring His storm and is ready to make full war upon the earth. And these torches are said to be the seven spirits of God. Seven meaning fullness, meaning that God will judge in the fullness of His Spirit. One thing in the book of Revelation that's captivating is that really what you're seeing is that the the restraints of common grace are being loosened. All that the Spirit has been doing in the world for the benefit of mankind and the church is now being taken away. And where the Holy Spirit has a ministry that acts with grace from the beginning of the church, and since the beginning of time, the church is said that the Spirit is said to be striving with man. The Spirit filled the saints and empowered them through the ages. The Spirit now convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He regenerates with new birth. But a time is coming when the fullness of the Spirit, along with the whole triune Godhead, will be ready to inflict a storm of judgment on the earth. All members of the Trinity in agreement. And by the way, in a couple chapters, it's revealed that the saints in heaven are actually praying to God that this be let loose upon the earth. And they don't see any harshness or or blemish in the judge on his throne. They're praying that God would judge. This enthroned king is seen as just. More on that next week. But that's not the complete picture. Continuing this vision, John continues with a description that may be the most mystifying description in this chapter. I'm just going to read a a giant chunk of it and draw out a few insights as we move to the end of the chapter. Probably the most mystifying description in this whole chapter is this description of four living creatures around the throne. I'm going to read the full set of verses about them and, and draw out some concepts. Read with me about these four creatures. Verse 6. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within the day and night. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. John must have stared at these for a while. Before we even get to the creatures, I want to note that you and I are actually meant to notice something else about the throne before we even consider their proximity to the throne. We are to notice with John that between the throne of God and these creatures... There is an expanse. There is an expanse. It's called a sea of glass. This is an important detail in this account because it highlights something very important about God and His throne. Yes, God is 
imminent and He's close with those in heaven. But this sea of glass reminds us, the readers, that the Lord our God is still transcendent. He's still distinct. That expanse is purposefully placed by the reigning king. It sends a message to everyone, including all of heaven's inhabitants, that none of us will ever be on his level. Even in a perfect, glorified state like heaven, God remains wholly other than us. And this sea of glass surrounds the throne of God like a moat around a castle. It's not because heaven's inhabitants are are his enemies and he needs protection. They're holy. It's because although they are holy, God is still set apart in his infinite holiness. He alone is holy God and no one will ever Mistake it. John fit, or Job 15.15 15 reminds us, even the heavens are not pure in his eyes. And around the throne are mentioned these four living creatures. And they have peculiar descriptions to read about. It's actually not the first time that something reminiscent of these creatures are mentioned in the Scriptures. There's Isaiah's vision talks about them as seraphim and Ezekiel's vision of the throne describes them as cherubim. They have similar descriptions, likely the same creatures. And each reader is just trying to describe these things to us. There's a lot of mystery surrounding the, this angelic order of cherubs. But one thing seems to be clear through the narrative of Scripture of the function of a cherub. Cherubim are positioned by God throughout Scripture as guardians of His glory. Guardians of His glory. You remember back in, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden in Genesis chapter 3. What does God place at the entrance of the garden? It says He places a cherub to sort of guard the entrance back to the presence of God. In Israel's history... Cherubim were engraved onto the Ark of the Covenant above the mercy seat. And they were placed strategically in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Again, at the entrance to the Shekinah glory of God. This is what cherubim represents. And here, it is seen that they are before the throne in front of the expanse. And they seem to be guardians yet again. They are guardians of the holiness and the glory and dignity of God. Now when I say that, I want to be careful. God has no need of guardians. He needs no protection of His glory, just as He doesn't need thrones or other positions. Any position that anyone has in heaven is granted by privilege. And usually to send a message. John writes that They're positioned around the throne on each side. And they're described as having eyes in front and behind, which seems to communicate they are using complete surveillance. Nothing gets past them. Razor-sharp detection. What's being communicated here? The idea here is that in front of this expanse between the throne and heaven's inhabitants, these guardians are positioned as reminders that no one, even in heaven, may irreverently approach the throne of God. Even perfect angels and glorified saints who have no sin are reminded that this God they worship and celebrate and champion, though He is close in communion with them, He is still majestic. He's still holy like no other. He's still distinct and altogether separate. His presence will be our joy and delight, but He is not to be treated commonly. Like Moses, 
we will be on holy ground. It's important in this account of the living creatures that we don't fixate so much on the creatures, but that we see that that their existence says something about God. The high order of angelic beings aren't in existence and positioned to showcase themselves. Rather, they're mentioned in this account because their characteristics reveal something about the one seated on the throne. It's still all about God. I heard Paul Washer make a comment about these beings that I thought was really helpful and thought-provoking. It was more just in passing, but I took note of it. Paul Washer said this about these creatures, quote, It's difficult to nail down what these creatures are, but one thing we can say about them, they must be the most powerful creatures that God has ever made. How do I say that? Because of their proximity before the throne of God. They are closer to the throne of God than any other creature recorded in Scripture. And whereas this glory would kill those on the earth if they were to see it, they live in that glory. End quote. Now with their power and status in mind, this doesn't highlight themselves. This says something about God because of the way they're described. It makes it all the more remarkable when we consider that they're not looking at themselves really at all. They have utter humble submission to this king. Each is described with a look that seems to communicate an attribute of their service to this king. One is like a lion using all their strength for his service. One is like an ox communicating sacrificial in their service. One is like a man, which seems to indicate that all of their intellect and reasoning powers are used for his service. And one looks like an eagle, which communicates swiftness in carrying out his service. They are all in in serving this king. And they're described as having six wings, which shows their humility. It's not described in this passage, but Isaiah 6 in his throne room vision, actually talks about the function of these wings. And it really is instructive for us. Isaiah 6, Isaiah describes the function of each pair of wings in the six. He says, with two wings they cover their face, with two wings they cover their feet, and with two wings they fly. Each of these pairs of wings communicates something about the greatness of God. Let me kind of elaborate on that. The two wings that cover their face show that even this high order of powerful angelic creatures in their proximity to God, they, even they, cannot look upon His glory. They cover their eyes. They're impressive, but not that impressive. The two wings covering their feet seem to show that even they, these powerful angelic creatures, even they feel unworthy to tread before His presence. And with two they fly, always ready to carry out His bidding, always moving, always ready day and night to serve this holy King. These four living creatures are mysterious, but they say something about the God they're in proximity to. Just in their existence, they communicate that. Look at what they actually say. It says day and night. They don't even cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God's holiness is their anthem. The first holy is the declaration The second holy is repetition. A third holy is the superlative. Holy, holier, holiest. God is holy. And there is none like Him. All in heaven will be holy, and these beings are holy, but none except this one on the throne is holy, holy, holy. 
And when all see these four creatures declaring this, their reaction is praise in agreement. Accounts like this in Scripture, for application, should keep our view of God in check. I was pondering this. I was thinking how our tendency is often to try to bring God down to a level we can understand. And I think that is actually often a grave mistake. Don't try to bring God down to your level. We run the risk of distorting Him in our minds, and that is how idols are created. We must always keep a transcendent view of God and come before Him with reverence. Yes, He is our Father. Yes, He is imminent and He condescends to His people and He can even be described as a friend of us. But let us never simplify or lower Him. Jesus taught us to address Him as our Father, but He made sure to add our Father in Heaven. Remember who your Father is. A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, we're never going to totally comprehend God. These beings probably have the best knowledge in proximity to God, and even they exclaim, holy, separate is this one on the throne. And in a real sense, even the highest view of God is still a very low view of God. As far as our finite minds can go, we are to remember that there is always an expanse between God and His creatures. And we must remember the infinite holiness and transcendence and majesty of this sovereign God. This is what John in exile needed to see. This is what the churches who were suffering needed to hear. This revelation of the throne was the perfect place to start the whole book. In fact, what else even matters if you just see the throne? The rest of it just reflects how he's going to bring things about. Just look at the throne. This revelation of the throne is placed here at the forefront of the entire book to remind us who carries out history. And we are most filled with hope And we are most bold in our witness. And we are most motivated to overcome and endure when we have this high view of God on His throne. And notice the living creatures connect His coming to the superlative anthem of His holiness. Who was and is and is to come. This great God is on His throne. But he's not sitting sitting idly. The storm is brewing. The script of history is going as he drafted it. And he is going to send his son to consummate his reign on the earth, which the next chapter picks up. Next week in the fifth chapter, we'll look at the profound role of God God the Son, the Lamb of God, as he approaches this throne to carry out the task. To conclude our message, I'm simply going to read the rest of the chapter, which is the reaction of heaven to these things, which really directs the church in our response to these things. Read with me, and then we'll take communion. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him, who is seated on the throne, and worship Him, who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. This is the ultimate picture of heaven. 
the glory and praise that is rendered to the King. All of redeemed humanity will cast their crowns before the throne. There's no authority they have apart from Him, and any persevering they did to earn a reward will be ascribed back to the One who is seated on the throne. This message really serves as a communion message as well, which I will give really quick. If you have a communion cup, if you don't have one, just raise your hand and we will distribute it to you. If you didn't grab one on the way in, I'm not going to rehash something entirely different here for our communion meditation. It's sort of set up for us here. God enthroned will be the marvel and delight of all His redeemed people. I want us to remember as we are about to take communion that this God enthroned was not always our delight. That at one time, God on His throne would have been our terror. God on His throne is not good news to a lost sinner, to a rebel. His holiness that heaven delights in once stood against us. The storm of wrath brewing before His throne was once coming for us. His holy wrath would be poured upon us with perfect justice. Which is why next week there's good news when a lamb shows up. A lamb who had been slain. We have all in our sin foolishly treated this king with irreverence and contempt and lawlessness and exchanged his glory for idols. Which is why we must not only remember the sovereignty and holiness of this God on His throne, we must also remember the mediator between God and man. God has condescended in many ways to make Himself known, including this vision. But the greatest way that God has condescended was by stepping off His throne God the Son coming to earth, emptying Himself of privilege. God in Christ to the cross, reconciling the world to Himself. We remember that the storm of wrath that was coming for us, the judgment we deserve, has fallen on another. Jesus bore our sins. And Jesus bore the wrath on the cross so that as we sang earlier, before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea. And just like the redeemed in heaven that we read about, we have been clothed with pure garments as we wear His righteousness. As we take the bread and the cup, I want us to think again about that rainbow around the throne. That rainbow of His covenant faithfulness. You and I no longer come before a throne of judgment. We approach a throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The boldness is only owing to the body that was broken for us and the blood poured out. Let us take the bread. This bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for you and I. Let's eat. The cup represents blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins.
Let us drink and remember him. Let's pray before we worship. Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you, Lord, that you are upon your throne. Lord, we pray your kingdom come. We pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How irreverent we often are, how we stray, how our minds are often earthly and carnal. And we need your Holy Spirit to renew us, to make us heavenly minded. Help us to overcome in these days that are opposed to your kingdom purposes. Help us to be set apart, suited for heaven, suited to be before your throne. And we know we are ultimately suited because of your Son. Help us to then walk in him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.